We are now entering into the passion narrative of Jesus, and that is where we're picking up here in verses 14. Verse 1, And it was now two days before the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. And there were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do for them good. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. In verse 10, then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and they sought an opportunity to betray him. This is God's word. Amen. So as I said, we are now entering into the passion narrative of Jesus. The passion narrative is the final moments, the final days of Jesus' life, and we are entering that final week now. Um, The religious leaders here are pressed for time. They're really scared because they don't have a way to kill Jesus. And the Passover is looming over their heads. And their big idea is we need to get rid of him before the Passover. You see, Jerusalem was roughly 40,000, 50,000 people um, populating the area. And then coming to Passover was the big Jewish celebration. It would increase as people would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to about 700,000 people. And we've already seen throughout the Gospel of Mark, Jesus kind of putting to shame the Pharisees and tearing up the temple. So in the Pharisees and the leaders' minds, there's no telling what Jesus is going to do next. They need to get rid of him before masses of people come and hear him preach. But as we see in verses 1 and 2 here, we'll read this again closely. It was two days before the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. They're scared of the people. And the issue here is Jesus is never alone. Time and time again, they're trying to go get him. And there's always a crowd. And we know that they are more worried about what the crowds think of them. Um, And so they're too scared to kind of approach. And so this passion narrative, or this sets up a good point for Mark's passion narrative. As we're going to see the preceding events be very crucial to the ministry of Jesus and the foundations of what we here believe. And we know what's going to happen as people who are, who are familiar with this uh, passage. Um, spoiler, Judas will eventually betray Jesus. The disciples will flee and abandon them or abandon him. And Peter, the, the most gung-ho for Jesus, if you will, will even deny ever knowing who he was. And we are shown, even through the closest friends of Jesus in the rest of the passages of Mark, um, what happens when we don't accept who Jesus truly is, and worship him. The disciples, you see, they didn't understand that Jesus was the Messiah. They still wrestled with this idea, or they thought he was the Messiah, but they didn't believe he was the type of Messiah that he really was. So the idea was the Messiah was, or for them, the idea was the Messiah is going to be this political figure who's going to uprise and overthrow the Romans and free them. And so many times you'll see people waiting for Jesus to uprise and to overthrow, and they're 
they're pressed for time. They're like, oh, it's got to happen soon. It's got to happen soon. And the disciples still don't understand that Jesus has come humbly to be a spiritual Messiah, not a political Messiah. And so, with their worshiping of Jesus throughout his life, they still don't understand. But we see someone in this passage who fully understands who Jesus is and worships him that way. So Mark dedicates the beginning of that passion narrative to show us what true, authentic worship of Jesus is. Which brings us to our main point. Our worship of God must be truly authentic and genuine. And when I say worship, I want you to be, uh, I want you to understand, it'll be very clear. Worship isn't just coming into this service at nine o'clock or coming to the 11 and then singing songs and listening to the message. Worship goes way beyond just that. These are forms of worship. But I want to show you this quote by J.R. Packer. Worship is the honoring and glorifying of God by gratefully offering back to him all the good gifts and all the knowledge of his greatness and graciousness that he has given. So what he is saying here is everything we do, everything we say is an outpouring of praise and worship for the gospel message that Jesus has transformed us. So we're going to get into our three points I want to show you of what true, authentic worship of Jesus truly is. Our first point, authentic worship is absolute. And what I mean by that is it is not diminished in any way, and it is total. When something is absolute, it is final. There is no going back when you say, I'm, this is an absolute. Look again at verse 3. And while he, being Jesus, at, was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came in with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. This woman, Mark leaves out the name of her, but in the Gospel of John, we realize that this woman is Mary, the uh, sister of Martha and of Lazarus. And the reason why we get it anonymous here is because Mark, we believe, is the first Gospel to have been written. And so being a Christian was outlawed and very dangerous. And if you were associated, you would be murdered. So Mark decides to leave her anonymous for protection. And then later down the road, John writes his Gospel, and things are a little bit more safer. It's still dangerous, but things are safe. And so John is able to list her by name because they're not in fear of her life. So when I, if I say Mary, this is who I'm talking about, this woman here. So she barges into this home of Simon the leper and she breaks this bottle of ointment. And we're going to get into what that ointment truly is next point, but she breaks this bottle She doesn't just open it and pour a little bit out on Jesus, but she breaks it. She shatters the vial. There is no one using this ever again after she breaks it. What she is doing here is an absolute worship act here. This whole thing that I have, I'm giving it all to Jesus. There's no going back from this. No one can use this again. Not Mary, not Martha, not their mother. And this was a very valuable thing. And she shatters the bottle to pour this ointment to anoint Jesus. This was a very worshipful act, and she knew what she was doing, and she laid everything she had. This was her livelihood. This is the only claim to fame, if you will, that she possessed, and she breaks it for Jesus because she cares that much about worshiping him. The Gospel of Mark, um, as we have seen, is full of examples of people laying down their lives and people giving everything they have to following Jesus. If you recall months and months ago, Mark 5 tells us of a woman who had a flow of blood 
um, and she is trying to get to Jesus to get healing. And even before that, um, think back to when Keith first started Mark, which seems like years ago. Um, and actually, it might be years ago. But um, Mark 1, it tells a story of a man with leprosy running up to Jesus and asking for healing. Both of these people are considered unclean in the Jewish tradition. They can't be around anybody. So the fact that both of these people run to Jesus... It's them saying, I'm giving everything. I am laying down everything I have to worship Jesus. Because they could be killed. If an unclean person comes in contact with someone clean, they have the ability to kill them under Jewish tradition. So these people are coming to Jesus saying, I I have to be near you. I have to worship you. And I have to seek healing from you. These people risk their lives in absolute worship to Jesus. And do we today worship in a way like that, I wonder? Um, oftentimes it's difficult um, to find, we worship Jesus. And we, we are blessed to have it lucky over here. Um, but do we worship today in a manner that tells the world there is no going back, that I'm laying everything I have down for Jesus, that my worship is absolute, that there is no question about it? And our second point, authentic worship is costly, Look again at verses 4, 5, and 6. And there were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing for me. So this ointment, as we hear here, is 300 denarii. And if you don't know, a denarii or denarius was one day's worth of wage. So this was almost a full year's worth of wages. So take your yearly salary, whatever that may be. The average household income, or at least what I googled, was roughly 40 to 45,000. So picture this bottle of ointment being $45,000 worth. And she gives it all away to Jesus. And since women did not work often as men or didn't work at all, or if they did work, they did not make that much money, this probably wasn't even Mary's to begin with. This was probably something worked hard for, like a family heirloom, or worked hard for by Lazarus and their father. So this wasn't even her money that was spent on this, but this was probably an expensive gift given to her, and she gives that up in a heartbeat. We don't read in that passage that she comes over and goes, ah, I just don't know, and we get this internal monologue from Mary. No, she runs in, barges in, breaks it, and pours all of it out. She doesn't care what the cost is. And here we see an example that perfectly shows us that worshiping Jesus is costly, We see this example being financially costly, but I want to say to you, it's not always the case, but there are other ways that worshiping Jesus will cost you something. It might cost you relationships with your friends, with your family, or with your co-workers. Christian in the room, for those who work in the secular field, are you worshiping Jesus in a way that shows your co-workers, I am a Christian, I worship Jesus? And this might cost us something. Unfortunately, today, people... Is it safe to say people don't like the church today? We see time and time again people complaining about those who follow the word of God as culture shifts one way and the Christians follow the Bible and that kind of takes us two different ways. The world is becoming more and more hostile to us and our relationships are going to be challenged. 
It might cost us time, or it will cost us time. Worshiping and serving Jesus will take time out of your day. This is a perfect example. You have sacrificed your morning on a Sunday, one of your precious days off, to come in and worship God. Keith was very brutally honest to me when I took this position. He said, true ministry work is going to cost you your time. I might have to call you up at 9 p.m. and say, hey, we're going to go on a hospital visit. And if that doesn't interest you, I'm going to encourage you to find work elsewhere. So Keith, brutally honest to me, telling me true worship is going to cost you some time. It's going to cost us um, an image, an Im- the image of ourselves. Like I said earlier, the world doesn't like the church, and others are going to think differently of us. Are you willing to sacrifice for worship of Jesus what others think of you? Some of this might be very easily. Others might be difficult. There's a friend of mine in college who was so caught up in what the world and what um, the people at the university thought of her, it just it scared her, and she didn't want to go out anywhere. And then you have people like my roommate senior year who was like, I don't care, I'm going to do whatever I want. And so there's two different types of people out there, but following Jesus is going to cost you the image of what you think you look like. People will, like it or not, view you differently because of this. If you look in Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 22, Jesus even gives perfect indications that it's going to be costly to follow him. And it reads, Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds, have the, or birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And another disciple said to him, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and lead the dead to bury their own dead. In these instances, we see for the first person following Jesus in this instance, is just going to cost him a room, a spare room to have Jesus stay the night. And this man, we understand from the, the text that this man walks away and like, I don't want to do that. Someone else gives a more serious, I would argue, over giving up a spare room. Uh, let me go bury my father. And Jesus said, no, follow me. Jesus and worshiping Jesus supersedes anything else in our lives. And for these people, it's going to cost them time with their family. This man, think about it. If you were not at the graveside or the funeral service of a, relative, of a close relative, people are going to think differently about that. And so for this man to follow Jesus meant, I am not going to be there to bury my own father. And again, we understand from the passage that these people choose not to give that over to Jesus. It costs these men something. True worship of Jesus goes beyond these church doors and outside the Sunday afternoon. It is a 24-7, 365 days a year worshipful act. Every day, like we said in that J.I. Packer quote, everything you do, everything you say should be in worship of Jesus. Are we willing to give up something to truly follow Jesus? We see Mary was She, in this instance, financially, is willing to give up the most precious possession, the only thing that probably gave her family any recognition by having this expensive bottle of ointment. And she gives it over, and she gives it all up. And our final point, authentic worship is Christ-centered. Look at verses 7, 8, and 9. Jesus says, For you will always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body before burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. 
I like that last verse because today, thousands of years later, we are listening and these messages are preached based on what she has done. It's kind of you're seeing Jesus' prophetic word come to life now as we're reading. She will be remembered for her worshipful act. And we're today learning about this woman, learning about Mary. So authentic worship is Christ-centered. This woman barges into a dinner she was not invited to and focuses only on Jesus. As we see people rebuking her and mocking her, um, she doesn't care about that. She just runs to Jesus and does what she wants to worship him or does what she wants to do for Jesus. You see, women in that time, in biblical times, um, weren't probably allowed to be in this dinner party. So these were, we know Jesus was there. We know Simon the leper. Lazarus was most likely there um, as this was happening in his hometown and they were close. A bunch of men were just gathered together. And so women during this time were kind of to be separate. They were either supposed to be in another area of the house or just not present. So the fact that she is even coming in here solely for the sake of Jesus shows that this is intense and serious worship. She knew who Jesus was, and she wanted to anoint him for burial. When we talked earlier, the disciples, they don't understand who Jesus is. They don't understand, well, why do you have to lay your life down? If you recall, even Peter pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him and says, like, you don't know what you're talking about. You're the Messiah. Start acting like it. And then Jesus goes, okay, well, I'm going to rebuke you now. And he says, get thee behind me, Satan. Peter and the disciples don't understand what Jesus is coming to do, but Mary does. She understands that the Messiah is going to lay his life down for us. And she anoints him for burial. And the disciples, um, and again in John's gospel says it was led by Judas. Judas is the one saying, why is this not sold for the poor? And that's because Judas would steal from the money box for his own. So when Judas sees 40 grand just sitting there, and then all of a sudden just gone, he's mad And eventually we see in 10 and 11, that's what sets him off and leads him to betray Jesus. And again, we see though, Jesus says, no, what she has done is a good thing. I want to encourage you today, first off, by saying, whenever you worship Jesus and as Christ-centered, when you sit down and open the pages of your Bible, or when you come to church for the reason of growing closer uh, to the Lord, Jesus says that is a good thing. Thing. It is a good thing, not wasted or diminished. See, oftentimes, though, we will come to church and we'll read our Bibles and we'll worship, and we do so without really ever even thinking about Jesus in our minds. We kind of come in to check the box that says we're Christian, and then we leave these doors that check other boxes that says the world, I'm not really Christian. A lot of times people will say, I'm a Christian because I go to church or because I read my Bible, when in reality, it is faith in the gospel message of Jesus Christ that saves you. And do you live out your life in a way that shows the world, my worship is Christ-centered, this is why I am a Christian? Oftentimes, we say we do the right thing, but we just have those wrong motives. I am going to serve the Lord in this way, but in reality, I want the other people in the church or around me to see how holy I am. When I was in high school, I went to a Christian's private school, and so we had chapel every Fridays, um, and then the worship team would come up, and they said, if you want to come worship up at the front of the stage, you're welcome to, and it's a good way to get us out of our seats, because uh, you're in high school, you don't really care about doing anything, and I would just make a beeline straight for the front of the stage to worship, and at the first song, as soon as it became somewhat appropriate to put my hands out in worship, I'd throw my hands out in worship, not because I cared about Jesus 
because I wanted people in that room to see how holy I was and because the girl I liked was into godly men and I wanted to be the godly man. And so I threw out my hands in worship and I pretended to be in serious praise and worship. I even bended the knees a couple times and just for the sole purpose of look at me, look how cool I am, look how holy I am. I wrestled with this in college as I would give messages and lead uh, groups um, at the school and I would have to check myself, am my, are my motives christ Centered, And I have to honestly tell you today, nine times out of ten in college, my motives were, look at me. Look how cool I am. So even today, as I come to this message to preach, uh, I was petrified. Because is my motives right? What am I doing this for? I had to call up three different people, good men in my life, saying, I'm wrestling with this. I don't know. Is my worship of Christ true, or do I just want to look the part? And they shared good words of wisdom. But this is a gripping thing in the churches. Are you doing what you are doing in the church because you want to and to show off? Or are you doing it because Christ has called you and you truly want to give everything you have to Jesus? And again, we say we're going to do these things, but we have the wrong motives. And this is preached throughout the entirety of the Bible as sinful and dangerous to do. God condemns this way of worship, of just doing it, just to do it, but not really having your heart in it. And I have a couple verses here. I don't think they're on the screen. That's okay. Um, Hosea 6, 6, For I, the Lord, desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. 1 Samuel fifteen twenty two has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings, or does he have more delight in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and then to listen to the fat of rams. He is saying clearly, I don't care about the act. I care about the heart of the matter. I care about, is your heart truly in it. How many times parents in the room have you told your child to go take out the trash or do something like, oh, and they just run it over? Well, and then, that's not okay. It's how you do it. I would get whooped so many times because my dad would say, Nate, take out the trash. But, dad, no, I don't want to take out the trash. And then I would just go over and I'd throw the bag out and I'd pull it over and I'd chuck it into the dumpster and I would get whooped so hard. And I'd be like, but I did what you said. And my dad would always look at me and my dad was this police officer, booming voice. He goes, but it's how you did it. And I would just start crying because I was so scared of my dad. <laughs> and so we see examples just like this. God doesn't care necessarily about what you're doing as far as worship, but is your heart in it? Does that make sense? And we see this all over the Bible. Jeremiah 7, 22 to 23. Psalm 51, 15 to 17. Psalm 50, verses 8 and 9. Proverbs 21, 3. Three more to make, really set my case down. Isaiah 1, 11 through 17. Ecclesiastes 5, 1 and Matthew 9, 13 are all saying the same thing. If you want to go back and look at any of those scriptures, they're all saying, I desire your heart. I don't care about the burnt offerings. I don't care about the sacrifices. I want you. Jesus wants your worship, our worship, to be focused solely on him and not other people. And not, I'm going to come to church because it's going to show my family that I actually am a Christian. or I'm going to prove the point that I actually am. In reality, your heart's not in it, and Jesus condemns this. Can I offer you this serious warning? Jesus is concerned with proper worship of him. 
He knows our hearts and our motivations. How many times in the Gospels have we read that Jesus, perceiving their thoughts, perceiving their heart, and answers them? Just look at the Pharisees and the religious leaders who worshipped God outwardly, but in their hearts cared more about what the crowds thought of them. Didn't Jesus have choice words for those people? The Pharisees we read would, when they're fasting, put on this sad face and walk around going, oh, woe is me. Like, everybody look at me. And then other times, if they were praying, they would walk out in public and pray really loudly and really using big $400 words to seem better than everybody else. And Jesus had very choice words for them, didn't he? He wasn't interested in fake worship. He wants you to be genuine. And you say, well, maybe my genuineness isn't good enough. It's good enough. Jesus wants it. Jesus wants that little piece of worship that you can offer. Think back to when Keith preached about the widow and the coins. She didn't have too much. That was everything she had as well. And she gave it all over to Jesus. And that's what Jesus says. She has given more because she gave out of her poverty and she laid everything out. That is true worship. Our lives are lived in worship. You and I will worship something on this earth. We will either worship God or we will worship evil. And you say, well, I don't know if I'm worshiping God, but I definitely know I'm not worshiping evil. If you're not worshiping God, Jesus says no man can serve two masters. He will either love one and hate the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. In that instance, talking about the devil or the connotations being sin and evil. No one can serve two masters. Are you worshiping God rightly? Is your worship Christ-centered? I'm not trying to bear down on you. I want us to look at ourselves and examine ourselves because this was something I could not grasp. And I consider the early days of my Christian life a failure because I could not understand this and all I wanted to do was to look the part. Our lives are lived in worship. John 4.23 tells us this beautiful encouragement though. And Jesus says, Jesus tells us of a time coming when people will worship him in spirit and in truth. The hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to follow him. Church, do you consider yourselves among these people? Those who don the title of Christian should be uplifted and encouraged and said, well, yes, I'm following Jesus. I'm worshiping in spirit and in truth. Do you count yourselves among? Because this time, the hour is coming. We are living in that hour. We are living in that time. This is the moment to start worshiping Jesus in spirit and in truth. And all that is, is just a way of saying, be genuine. Is your worship Christ-centered like Mary was? I reiterate this point for the third time. Our lives are lived in worship. You will worship something. You are currently worshiping something. Church, what are you worshiping? We should worship as people who have been changed by the gospel. The gospel should encourage and empower our worship of him. If we are truly who we believe we are to be, our worship should be so bold to show the world who we are and more importantly, who Jesus is is. 
I'm going to invite the band to come forward, and I'll be closing. And then we're going to take a time of communion um, that Brian will leave us. And during that time, again, I want to show you this example. This woman lived her life. This one act is showing the world this is what true worship is. Mark cares about this woman enough, and this worshipful act was powerful enough to be written down to show us this is what it means to worship. She's not interested in anything else, only Jesus. As you leave these doors today or whenever you are dismissed and whenever we leave, examine your hearts. When you sit down and open that word, when you sit down to pray, whatever you do, look at your own life. Am I worshiping rightly? Is your worship authentic? Do you consider yourselves to be worshiping in spirit and in truth? Again, that time is now, and the hour is here.